we get back into 1 Samuel 13 this morning. We're going to press into the idea of guidance because there's, there's a guide behind every single decision we make. Sometimes it's sourced in our heart. Sometimes our, gu- our guide is the Lord. Sometimes our guide is from the culture, something else that we've learned. So we're going to press into the idea of what is, it, what is that guide behind just our, our words, our behaviors as we contrast Saul and Jonathan this morning. And then next week, we're going to kind of conclude this section as we're watching Saul slide away from his anointing and away from the Lord, away from his role as king, and press into the idea of obedience next week and how all of these ideas really tie together. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. And just remembering where we were last week, um, Saul and Jonathan in leading portions of the army, Jonathan took it upon himself to attack the Philistines. That attack was successful. Saul is claiming it as his own, but that attack, he kicked the beehive, so to say, and the Philistines are gathering together, and it uses the language that there are so many people, it's like the sand on the seashore in, in, its, in their inability to number the Philistines that are coming against them. This is a motion that would cause fear, it would cause trembling. As the Jews are dealing with this circumstance, they leave, and they're hiding, and they're scattering. Saul takes it upon himself in his disloyalty and offers a sacrifice on his own rather than waiting because last week again we talked about he felt confined in his feelings he felt compelled that this was the only choice that he had in the situation and when samuel comes and confronts saul there's out of samuel's mouth as prophets that the kingdom is going to be taken away from saul so in that emotion we have to sit with saul this this is where we've left him These are the words that Samuel has just spoken to him, that God has called you, God has anointed you to this position as king, and we've watched Saul and the issues of his character and how he's responded to this position. But he's just listened to Samuel's words. Now this calling that you have, this appointing that has been given to you, it's now going to be removed. I really do sit in the idea of the circumstance that there is an invitation to repentance. There's an invitation to Saul to get right with God and to remain right with God. But we watch Saul continue to press into himself, his own thinking, and his own ways. And again, if you know the story of Saul, we'll watch him get swept away as king. But this is where the people are sitting in these emotions, especially Saul. So in verse 16 of chapter 13... So Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Says then raiders; these are spoilers. These are these these are uh, the Philistines are going out and destroying, you know, raiding parties because they need to uh, keep their supplies up while they're there in Michmash. So here's the the description: the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, or Oprah, one of the two, uh, to the land of Shual, this is to the north. Another company turned to the road that went to Beth Haran, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So again, all of this, this is just painting a snapshot. Here's, here's the Philistines encamped in Michmash and all of their masses. They're sending out raiding parties in different directions, harassing the Jews as they are hiding, as they are in fear, um, and they are leaving a path of destruction behind. Verse 19 gives a snapshot of what's going on in the culture at this time. It says, There was no blacksmith, no craftsman to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his sickle, so all these farming implements. And the charge for a, uh, for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So again, this is an exorbitant price, of course. 
So it came about on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found in the hand uh, with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So again, this is the scene in the picture that's being set. Saul is sitting in his emotions in the words of Samuel as the Jews are sitting and the Philistines coming against them once again. They are without the proper implements of warfare. Now, it's not that you can't do damage with the quarterstaff or some of your farming tools as you go out to war, but they are extremely outnumbered and they are extremely outmatched is the picture that's being painted. Now, in that, where would you be in your emotion? We're going to contrast Saul and Jonathan today. Saul is on one side of the spectrum. He's, he's an insecure man, and we watch that insecurity come out in all different ways in his life. But he's a man of inaction. He's a man of fear. He's a man that makes decisions based upon how he feels in his flesh, in, his, in, in the moment, we're going to watch him sitting in place today, and then we're going to contrast him with Jonathan. Jonathan's a man of action, and in his action, it's clear that he's submitted to the Lord. We're going to see today, there's, it's very clear why he and David were such good friends. As warriors in their boldness, in their courage in the Lord, they are go-getter, kind of don't care who is standing in my way. If you're an enemy of the Lord, my God is bigger than you. You're going to fall. God's going to win. I'm great. That's Jonathan's personality. Where are you on that spectrum? I can, I can tell you right now, I'm a mixed bag. This is why... Saul drives me nuts because I see myself in Saul in a lot of ways. Jonathan is such an encouragement because I, I see that call to trust in the Lord and to stand in the Lord. And it doesn't matter what you feel is standing before you. If the Lord wants you to do something, there's victory in the Lord's will always. And again, depending on the circumstance, depending how I'm feeling, uh, but when I just sit in my core individual this is a bad confession, but it's true. Like, I gravitate towards Saul. Some of you may gravitate towards boldness. You're a shoot-from-the-hip kind of person. The Lord's always got to keep a leash on you. You are go, 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 go. I'm go, 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 go in a lot of ways. I have a lot of energy, and I want to submit all of that to the Lord. But there's a lot of aspects of my personality, just in how I am wired by nature, that is much more reserved, and that can lead to inactivity in my life, waiting on the Lord to do something rather than moving forward with the Lord and allowing him to guide and direct. So these are the major ideas that we're going to contrast between Jonathan and Saul today as we're looking through that, that motivator, and it needs to be God in all things. But what is guiding you daily in that moment, in that decision, in that relationship, in those feelings, allowing the Lord to guide us. So now let's watch Jonathan in chapter 14. This is a great chapter. So it, just, it says it happened one day. Again, this is, this is a day that's no different than any other day. The sun wasn't brighter. The birds weren't any more chipper in the morning. It's just, here's a random day. As they're hiding, as they are sitting in fear, Something else is going on inside of Jonathan's heart. So now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in uh, the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. You've got to remember earlier chapters. Ichabod's name means dishonor, no honor. The glory of the Lord had departed in that scene as he's being bored, born. Ahijah is his older brother. It says the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. He's wearing the ephod. It's going to be important in a minute. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, again, the, the picture that's being painted is here's Jonathan's courage. Here's Jonathan's boldness. 
We don't know if he's in his flesh, in his head, but he has something stirring in him in the moment. Let's go over to the Philistines' garrison. He doesn't bring it up to his dad because his dad is leader. He knows is going to keep him from this behavior. He's not communicating to anybody else. He's talking to his armor bearer, probably his best friend, this guy that he trusts in this moment. Hey, let's, let's go over to the Philistines' garrison. In contrast to Saul sitting there, with a priestly leader that's earlier in Samuel has already been defined that this family has been removed from this authority and position because of sin and God was going to find a priest just like David is a king after his own heart a priest after his own heart also so verse 4 between the passes by which Jonathan sought again he's, he's seeking guidance he's seeking the right way as we go through this story, it's clear that he is in relationship with the Lord in this. But again, this is just, he hasn't heard, he hasn't had a vision, he hasn't had a dream. He's being motivated by his own heart and by his own thoughts. So often, as we've said, that there are many times that the direction that your heart is leading you can be in a very good direction and exactly where you need to go. But you need to be in constant connection with the Lord and asking questions as you're moving forward which is what Jonathan demonstrates. So Jonathan sought to go over the Philistines' garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, means shining. The name of the other, Sarah, I think that says, means thorn. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Again, you can go to this location today, but what, what's being painted is, you know, it's, it's pretty steep terrain. There is a wadi, so this, this creek river that's gouged a canyon, very steep sides. He's looking for a way to go up to the Philistine garrison covertly without anybody knowing. So verse 6, Jonathan says to the young man who bore his armor, they're drawing closer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And what a great line in the pages of the Bible. If you mark in your Bible, I suggest that you underline that. There is nothing that restrains God, that keeps him, that hinders him from saving with a massive army or just a few. And again, the context is in war, in battle. But there's nothing that hinders the Lord from performing his will. And what's the exception in the Bible that we're provided? Old Testament and New Testament tells us our unbelief, allowing our doubt to be our guide when we're confronted with a circumstance in the moment where you know that you are outnumbered, you are outmatched. If you move forward in independence from the Lord, you will be crushed. We all encounter those experiences. So in those experiences, what wells up in your feelings? Some of us are timid by nature and just your character, and others of us are very bold. And again, regardless of our personality, being timid is not a sin. Being bold is not a sin. Both can be used greatly by the Lord, and both can be um, very uh, damaging in your relationship with the Lord as you operate in, in your flesh. But here, Jonathan, in his boldness, just making the declaration, and as he is moving in his heart, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's cross over today because maybe the Lord's going to do something today. Maybe he's not, but maybe he is. So he has a boldness about him. He's got an assertion about him. But that foundation of, of his faith and of his boldness is that if God wants to save the nation of Israel, deliver the nation of Israel in this battle, in this moment today, it doesn't matter if it's just the two of us or if my dad's whole army is with us, all 600 that are here. They could all be with us. doesn't matter who it is. The Lord is capable of doing whatever his will is, is the declaration. And just, again, it's, it's an awesome heart. It's an awesome line to remind yourself of, not to move forward in arrogance, but just to remember that 
as you're in relationship with him and you're going through the circumstances of life, nothing can stand in your way. Greater is he that is in you, that is in the world. There is, if God is for you, no one can stand against you. You stand in him and in his strength, his might, his love, his grace. It's all focused on him as we move in this life. So his armor bearer says to him, do all that's in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Again, this is a, this is a confirmation just by encouragement of another because his armor bearer could have looked at him and said, you know, this, this really isn't a good idea. We, we should get back to camp. And maybe Jonathan would have followed him back to camp and using that as a confirmation if he you know, wasn't going to go this alone. But here, his armor bearer seems to be in confirmation. You know what, Jonathan, whatever's in your heart, I'm with you, I'm for you, our God is with us. Let's see what God has to do on this day. Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. And now there's a test here. If they say to us, wait... We'll come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hands, and this will be a sign to us. For those of you who know in Joshua and Gideon, the Lord had given Gideon a very specific command and declaration already, but Gideon, in his doubts in the moment, whether he was doubting himself, is this really you, Lord? He lays out the fleece, Lord. Hey, this is what I want you to do to provide a sign that what's your word that was just spoken, that's, that's really your word, and God does it. And in Gideon, in his timidity, he asked the Lord again. How many of you like multiple confir- confirmations from God? I like, I like to be about, you know, all my lists checked, I like God's signature at the bottom of the page and all of his promises that he has confirmed it multiple times before I move forward. That's where I get into my timid side, which can be good and it can be dangerous. Um, so for, for Jonathan here, it's, he is not doubting God and he's not doubting what God has said because God hasn't said anything as far as we know in the text. But what he is doing is, is he's just testing his own heart. This is what's in my mind and my heart to do today. And I don't know if God is behind this and for this or if he's not. So as we go and cross over, if those Philistines up on the heights, if they say, hey, you guys, you wait, we're going to come down to you. You know what? It's, it's, God's not for us. He's not going to give us a deliverance. But if they tell us to come up to them, then we know that God is going to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines on this day. And this is the test that he's presenting in his relationship with the Lord. So in verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they were, where they have hidden and from the earlier context where they're running from the masses of the Philistines. Verse 12, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. Now, have you ever asked God for a confirmation and he confirms like Gideon? You say, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I really want to do that or not. What does Jonathan have to do now? Time to fight. How many of you would still be trembling, fearful? Oh God, what have I gotten myself into? Oh, God, what have you gotten me into? I should have kept my mouth shut. should have stayed in my bed. But on this day, and again, this is just the confidence and the boldness, not of, not of arrogance, but in Jonathan, in his relationship with the Lord, and just how he's wired. You watch him. That moment of confirmation, he's ready to go, and not only is he ready to go, he goes, he obeys. So... There, finishing off verse 12, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Notice, it's not his hand, it's into the hand of Israel. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. That's how steep this is. So again, this is a lot of effort to get up there. His armor bearer after him says, And they fell before Jonathan, and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. 
the slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. Why the specifics? Not a clue. Throw on this, are the footprint of our buildings, you know, roughly a third of an acre. So spill out into the parking lot a little bit. You can kind of visualize the size. You can see Jonathan climbing up on his hands and knees this steep embankment to get up to the Philistines. They're probably not really ready for these two guys to, to take them on. But again, in this battle, you can picture the movie scene. You can see other circumstances in the Bible where a singular individual who is enabled to defend, to deliver, to kill in war over all of these people. This is an act of God in this moment, not for Jonathan, but to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies, those who are oppressing them, those who hate them, those who are outside the covenant of God. He called them these uncircumcised Philistines. This is a taunt of the day. It's the same language that David uses when we get into that battle between David and Goliath. Here are these individuals. They're, they're outside of the covenants of God. They're uncircumcised. They are standing in rebellion and opposition to the God who created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, how can God not be against him? All this boldness in Jonathan. Jonathan is going up, swinging the sword that he has, and as he's slashing, his armor bearer comes behind, comes behind and finishes him off. Totally weird scene. Hand-to-hand combat, combat is absolutely brutal. I am thankful to never have lived through that life context. Verse 15, a miracle is being performed. This is, this is something supernatural. It ought to sound weird to you. It ought to sound a little confusing. What is this? And want to look for a natural explanation. There is not. This is God acting on his own behalf in his power to bring about his will. Verse 15, there was trembling Fear in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison of the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked. God is shaking the land so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude just melting away. And again, you, gotta, you have to visualize this. You know, they're both on high areas. They can, they can see each other. You have the watchmen looking out, and here's the people as the sound, sand of the sh- seashore in their multitude, and now this, this guy that's on lookout, he's just watching. He, they all feel the ground shake. They know that something has happened, and they're watching the people just melt away. Again, this is the act of God. Saul said to the people with him, now call the roll and see who's gone for, from us. The saying, there's, there's, Why? Why is now a good time for a roll call? Who's in class and who's not in class is kind of the moment that Saul is sitting in, in his, in his mind, and his heart. It's a weird thing to do as a leader in the moment. You'd think he'd have much better questions and things to do other than do a roll call. But hey, have a call of roll and see who's gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now, there's some text differences in the manuscripts and history. If it's really the ark, well, it's probably the ephod in reference to the ephod that Ahijah, sorry, was wearing earlier in this description in the chapter. And the reason why is the umim in the... Well, the Urim and the Thummim are inside of this ephod. Now, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, as the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt, there's described the, the outfit of the high priest. And in this outfit, it has a breastplate. On the breastplate are 12 different stones, precious stones, that each represents one of the tribes of Israel. On each shoulder, there's a different stone. Again, six names on one stone. On the shoulder, six names on the other stone. That as this priest is ministering before the Lord, the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, are always over his chest as a chest plate, a chest piece. 
He is always bearing on his shoulder the tribes of Israel in his priestly duties as an intermediary and intercessor between the Almighty God and the children of Israel. In this ephod were these, what is understood to be just two stones, were unsure. The Urim and the Thummim were, they mean lights and perfections. Perfections has the idea of completeness and being innocent. But what it comes down to, our understanding is that they were used to ask God yes and no kind of questions. Should I go out to battle today? Yes or no? And based upon whether this is a rolling of the dice or if it was a white stone and a black stone kind of thing, we're unsure, but they were used to divine what God's will was in the moment. So again, if, it's, if the text is the Ark of the Covenant, it's kind of weird because the Ark is in kiriath Jerem. After, you know, the Philistines had taken it, it came back. It's not in the tabernacle it was before. Ahijah probably doesn't really have authority over the Ark. So the text evidence makes sense that it's talking about the ephod. So what Saul is saying, bring the Urim and the Thummim to, to me right now so that we can use God as a guide of what we're supposed to do in this moment. Feel this? Now watch Saul. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, he's having this conversation, and then there's all this noise that's going on in the camp of the Philistines, which was in the camp of the Philistines. It continued to increase. So again, all the noise, he's having a conversation, he's going to have talk to the Lord in prayer with the, with the Lord's priest in this moment. You imagine this? You want prayer in this moment of what you're supposed to di- decide to do? Saul gets distracted by the noise that's going on, and look what he says. Withdraw your hand. You know what? We don't need God's counsel. We don't need God's guidance. I've got this figured out in regards to what we're supposed to do right now. So Saul says, then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to battle. Indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Again, this is all supernatural act of God. We are contrasting Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan is clearly being guided by the Lord and trusting the Lord in the decisions that he's making. We watch Saul stutter in all of this, but ultimately he always comes back to what he feels in the moment. Take your hand away from the Urim and the Thummim. Take your hand away from seeking the Lord and his guidance. Let's just go to battle. And here's all this confusion. Verse 21, Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country. They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan, which is a weird cultural snapshot that some of the Jews had joined the Philistines. They're being oppressed by the Philistines. Whatever reason, they find themselves there serving them and even going to battle against the rest of the nation. Lots of confusion, lots of issues in the culture at this time, no doubt. Verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth Now in this context, the Lord saving Israel this day, again, this, is, this revolves around our relationship with God. In the order that he has created, he has chosen to involve us in his work. When he creates Adam and Eve, God creates and plants a garden. He places Adam and Eve in this garden. And as they are there in the garden, he's telling them to go out, to subdue, to tend the garden. Here's what I have created. I am placing the authority that I have into your hands, and we are going to work together in my creation. He's constantly inviting us into relationship. We watch that relationship get broken, and that repetitious issue of human beings doing what we want to do in independence of God. But as he works in us, as we pursue him, he's always still continually working through people. Had Jonathan not woke up on this particular day with the thought in his heart, I'm going to go and check out what the Philistines are doing today. Maybe today is a day of salvation in the Lord's mind. And I'm going to go and knock on this door. And God can send me home if he wants to, or God can send me forward if he wants to. But whatever the Lord's will is today, I want to be a part of it as Jonathan's heart. 
And again, in this, so in the salvation that God brought for the nation of Israel on this day, who was responsible for it in relationship with God, Saul or Jonathan? Jonathan. We've already seen Jonathan go out and attack and Saul take credit for himself. We've already seen and brought about multiple times Saul's insecurities. We're going to see later on when the, when the women are singing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. The anger and the jealousy that this brings about in Saul. So when you're sitting in Saul, that he has already been told by Samuel that he is going to be removed as king, and God is looking for another man, is going to appoint another man with a heart like God. Saul's sitting in that emotion. On this day... His son has gone and had the boldness while he is just sitting there doing nothing, not talking to God, not fasting, not praying, not planning. We're told he's just sitting and doing nothing. Once again, his son takes boldness and his courage in relationship with the Lord and goes and does something, guided by the Lord and directed by the Lord. And the Lord brings about this great salvation in this moment as the Jews are watching the Philistines fade away and just melt away. Now, in war, you want to chase down and execute as many people as you can because if you let those people melt away today, they are going to gather and they're going to come back again. So that's what's in Saul's heart. But Saul is also in his heart of his son just did something great and God just did something great through his son. Now Saul, in his insecurity, feels that he needs to do something great on this day also, which begins in verse 24, and again is another sign of him being swept away as king. The men of Israel, they were distressed that day. They were oppressed, their force. Why? Because Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And Saul in this moment, he, he's a terrible leader. We watched it before when the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was welled up with anger. He cuts up this ox, sends it to the 12 tribes. If you don't come fight with me, I'm going to kill all of your oxen in the same way. You know, just that rage rather than we talked before about inviting people into what the Lord is doing. It's the exact same thing in this moment. He is looking at the Philistines as his own personal enemy in confrontation, in opposition to his kingship, rather than looking at the Philistines as the enemies of the Lord and the Lord's covenant and the Lord's will. And he puts on a day of battle, he tells the people, now that we're going out to battle, now let's fast. Has anybody ever tried doing a HIIT workout or just, you know, really intense athletic endurance kind of behavior without eating? Do you feel faint at all? You know, you're good for what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? You're sweating, you're drenched. Oh my, I hate the gym. I'm never going to do this again. Let me have a Big Mac kind of attitude. So again, just think about what he's saying. Our job right now is the Philistines are running. Do you think that they're running away fast? They're running for their lives. And to catch up with them is an endurance sport. If you watch boxing or anything like that, the rounds are limited to, what, a few minutes? Because doing that kind of athletic behavior, that cardio behavior, you can do it for a few minutes and then you got to go sit down and regroup. You can do it for a few more minutes and then you got to go sit down and regroup. Guys that have been through a boxing match for 10 rounds, I mean, I don't know how long these last, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I didn't look it up. They're hammered. Can you imagine being in hand-to-hand -hand combat, how physically hammered you would be, how physically exhausted you would be? So his leadership as a military general, as a king that needs to take the people out to war and bring them out, his, what he has just done is weakened and hamstrung the entire army. So the people are distressed. They're troubled. Because he, as leader, has said, cursed 
And he doesn't have this authority and this power to curse people in the name of God. It's just what's pouring out of his mouth in the moment because he wants to be seen as the one who has power over the people and for, you know, that his name would be exalted in the victory. It says, so none, so none of the people tasted food. All the people of Israel came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. We live in a forest. You ever see honey on the ground? I mean, seriously, it's like God just placed this honey there for this moment for the people to see it, to be reminded of just how foolish their leader has been. Because each one of them could take a little bit of carbs to themselves and get some energy and be revived in the moment, but they can't because they're seeking to be obedient to their leader. People come into the woods, there was honey dripping. No one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with an oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod which was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance was brightened. One of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people, you can, see, you can see them all. They're all faint. Jonathan said, some people criticized Jonathan for saying this, uh, at least out in the open. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing to say publicly when somebody is out of line, when they're out of line publicly. Does that make sense? Now, private sins get dealt with privately unless the Lord needs to make them public according to his will. Public sins, public issues need to be deal, dealt with publicly. We sit in a political system, you know, you sit in the news cycles. The particular party, regardless of who it is, will never say anything wrong about their party and the behavior of the leadership of their party, right? You don't highlight the issues. And that's how we hide things and sweep things away and keep people moving in the direction that we want them to move. The Bible is brutally honest, and I love it. I need, I need God to be brutally honest with me. I need you. If I have a blind spot, I need you to be honest with me in love. I think Jonathan is being honest in the moment, in love for his father, in respect for his father, and in love for the people. Jonathan says, my father, he's troubled the land. It's true. Look now. Look at, look at how much my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Absolutely, it's all true. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon. So the people were very faint. Here's a consequence. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Now, don't picture like they just killed this animal and they're eating it raw. That's not what's being discussed. What's being discussed is that the, the proper way to slaughter an animal was when you slit the animal's throat, you hang it up, you put it up high so that the blood drains out of the body before you butcher it and before you cook the animal. What's being described is they're slaughtering it on the ground and they are carving the meat up and they're cooking the meat with the blood in it. Does that make sense? So, but that is a sin against God because very clearly life is in the blood. God himself is the source of life. The imagery associated with Jesus dying on the cross and pouring out his blood. There is covenant in the blood. There is power in the blood. There is very specific imagery associated with blood. So God says, do not eat it as an Old Testament command and a New Testament command not to eat blood. But here they are doing that. But it's ultimately a consequence of Saul's command. But Saul is saying, You've all dealt treacherously, treasonously. You're all in sin, so roll a large stone to me this day. Which the large stone is, again, to have a stone that's elevated so that the blood can drain out of the animals. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and sheep, and every man's sheep, slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. 
So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light and let us not leave a man of them. Again, his leadership is just, he's just insane. Hey, during the day, let's everybody fast and get weak and faint. And now they're having this barbecue and the barbecue's all in sin. And hey, now that you've all eaten, it's nighttime. You know, let's keep going until morning light. Great use of hum human resources as a general. Not even close. And they said to him, oh, whatever, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, hey, uh, let's have a conversation with God. Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and no one see what this sin was today. So again, Saul is, I'm perfect, I'm good, I haven't done anything wrong. God is not talking to me because you all did something. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be my son, Jonathan my son, he will surely die. So Saul, again, in his leadership, God's not talking to me because there's sin in the camp. And even if Jonathan is, my son, is the one who has sinned, we're going to kill my son today. Again, very harsh, very rash, very illogical. All of this is pouring out of his own heart. He's not sitting in the guidance of God. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, and the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? Sat in this question last week. Samuel comes to Saul and asks this question, what have you done? Again, I told you last week, I can, I can see the tenderness and the, the directness of Samuel's question to Saul to bring out confession. But in Saul, again, my imagination for these words coming out of Saul's mouth, he's rash. I think he's harsh. I think he's strict. I think that this is an, in anger. What have you done, Jonathan, you idiot? I mean, this, this is... This is just how I see Saul in the moment. And I may be, well, not maybe. I'm adding words to the Bible. But again, I'm trying to picture Saul's attitude as he's asking this question. And Jonathan tells him and says, no excuses. I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod which was in my hand. So now I must die. And I don't know if this is, I must die in that he's resigned to his father's declaration and his position and authority as king. Or this is, so now I got to die as in a question mark. Um, again, in Jonathan's integrity and his loyalty to God and to his dad, I do see it with the exclamation point that's in my Bible that it's, I will obey the judgment of the king. Verse 44, Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. No compassion for his own son. No responsibility for his rash oath, his multiple rash oaths. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? I don't think so. Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. This is the idea in this, in this, they rescued Jonathan, they redeemed him. 
they paid some kind of sacrifice. They had some kind of sacrifice to redeem him from the judgment of death in this moment. And again, this is an image of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for all humanity in redeeming us. He paid the price. He sacrificed himself. He shed his blood so that he has redeemed us. He has purchased us out of our own individual death and given to us his life. But look at the circumstance of the people. They're standing up against the authority of the king as they ought to in this moment because he's wrong and he's rash. And they know he's being guided by his flesh and his own emotions. And what he, the words that could have come out of his mouth and the consequences of those things, everybody knows that Saul is wrong. Have you ever been in the position when everybody knows that you're wrong? How do you feel in the moment? Are you ready to apologize or are you ready to defend? In the Lord, we're ready to apologize, get right, get reconciled. In the flesh, more often than not, we're ready to defend, ready to make excuses. But Saul can't stand against, Saul's afraid of people. We watch people drive his behavior and his decisions often, guiding him and what he's going to do in the moment, not what he ought to do. But here, the people stand up again in boldness and in confidence, and they say the command that the king has given, it's not right. We've watched on this particular day, the Almighty God work through the boldness of your son. The salvation, the deliverance that occurred today against the enemies of God was the result of one man choosing on this day to follow the Lord. According to the Lord's will in that moment, didn't matter if it was few, didn't matter if it was many, here's what the Lord wanted to do today. And again, he's always just looking for that singular individual. And again, he has his armor bearer with him. We're not just going about life all by ourselves. I am so thankful that we gathered together to worship our God together. There, there's a sweetness of worshiping God in my private time all by myself. But there's something special about when we gather together to have corporate worship to sing songs together, to press into all of our different personalities, some that are very bold and out there on the surface and ready to follow the Lord, whatever the Lord says, and with the very timid and the insecure and unsure and the doubting and watching those personalities temper each other. Having the bold person help out the timid individual have boldness in the Lord. Having the one that's timid and a little bit more cautious, bring the one that's overly bold down onto the ground and making sure that they're following the Lord. That's the sweetness of fellowship that we have together. There's a sweetness in the body of Israel at this time as they stand in the gap for and against a bad command. What has been pronounced by the king, it's wrong, and we're going to stand up and against that, and we're going to do what's right in this moment, even if it makes the leadership mad, even if it makes the leadership distrust me. Now remember, these are, these are men of valor. These are people that Saul has chosen to himself. These are people that are following Saul as king because this is the king that they've asked for, and they're submitted to the Lord in this moment. This is... These are people that are looking to the man that the Lord has anointed to follow that leadership. But does that mean that that leader is always right? Not at all. So in our, as we're pursuing God to guide us in our hearts, in our feelings, in our decisions, we're looking for him to be that constant guide in all things, at all times. Having the boldness to say to yourself, the guidance of your heart is wrong in this moment. I need to back up. I need not to head in this direction. Or the Lord is encouraging you in, in your thoughts, in your decisions. This is what I want to do. Pressing into the Lord and asking, giving the Lord those, those um, um, it's not a fleece, but Lord, give me a yes or give me a no in this moment. 
Is this what you would have me do on this day? Talking about evangelism. Lord, do you want me to talk to this person? Lord, I want to talk to that person. Do you want me to talk to them today? And let the Lord say yes or no, because sometimes he's going to say no. You know what? Today's not a good time to talk to them, but keep asking. It might be tomorrow. It might be next year. Or the Lord may say, I'm giving you the open door of opportunity to reach into this person's life, to love them, to redeem them out of their flesh, out of this world, out of their depression, out of the culture, out of addiction, out of, out of all the sins that you have been invited out of in relationship with the Lord. This is what the tribes of Israel did for Jonathan on that particular day. They kept him. They protected him. They loved him against an insane man. So Lord, in, in our lives, we want you to be our guide. We know that your word tells us that you are our helper, that you're our provider, that you're our teacher, that you are always with us. It brings a tremendous amount of comfort to me in, in just in all of life, Lord, knowing that you're there to speak and to lead. And it's circumstances in, in, the, in the passage that we read today where you were leading Jonathan through just his, his natural daily life. And I take courage and boldness in the life of a man like Jonathan, Lord. On that foundation. That nothing restricts you, nothing hinders you from performing your will. But when it comes to me, Lord, I'm asking that you draw just far away any those doubts that well up within me, um, those thoughts of unbelief that keep me from moving forward in you. But Lord, that I would trust you fully as you've revealed yourself in the moment as the day demands. And even when I know that you're moving forward and there's a battle that needs to occur, Lord, that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't hide from that moment. That I do the hard work that you're leading me to do, but not for my own sake, Lord, but the sake for those that you're asking me to serve passage today was a deliverance for the whole nation. It just wasn't a deliverance for Jonathan. And Lord, as I examine Saul and in his character, I get convicted with how often I think about myself and how often I'm letting what is it about me guide the decisions. So I'm asking, Lord, that you continue to free me from that those emotions of feeling confined and just wrapped up in my own head and heart. So, Lord, that I can truly be free so that I can truly have your joy so that I can truly do your work for your glory. And Lord, as you allow me to serve others, that it would be for their benefit and not for their hardship. I thank you for the account this morning, Lord. I have, I have so much to learn from both Jonathan and Saul in my relationship with you. So Lord, here's my mind, here's my heart. Here we are, Lord. Speak to us and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray.